Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, in the studio today, we just have me today, um, which um, Jacob Andrewafa, um, Zane and Lali are unfortunately away, um, but I still will hopefully be able to deliver quite a, a good program this um, this week. Um, we have at least two guests um, lined up. Um, we have Andrea Bunting, um, who has just recently returned from a trip to a climate conference in Germany and we'll be talking to her about, you know, what happened there and generally what her perspectives are on, you know, when to next for climate action. Uh, the second guest we have will be Anthony Kelly, um, the CEO of the Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre. Um, we'll be talking to him a bit about, you know, police violence um, at recent protests, including the Milo Yiannopoulos protest um, that uh, occurred this Monday. Um, now, I guess for in terms of before I move on to the uh, to the proceedings of the program, um, I'd like to acknowledge to you that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'd like to pay my respect to elders past and present, and that it always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Now, I guess we can get started on some news. Um, quite a lot has been happening in the past week or so. Um, the first positive news story I'd like to bring up is um, marriage equality has officially been legislated into the parliament. Um, we, for all intents and purposes, we have marriage equality. After a very kind of long, growing process, you know, with the, you know, 110 120, I forgot the figures actually, um, postal survey that we had to go through for the past three months and then we had to deal with, you know, the general kind of delays that happened in Parliament. You know, we had to, if anyone had, you know, watched bits of the parliamentary footage of yesterday, um, straight from live from the Parliament, which is when you basically had to hear through from every kind of right-wing you know, um, Senate um, MP make this case, you know, for preserving religious freedom. So basically putting forward amendments to the marriage equality will, um, bill that would have, you know, allowed, um, to, um, which essentially would have given more rights to bigots for the right to discriminate. Um, fortunately, um, all those amendments were voted down. Um, the only, uh, I mean, the, this, the, this, the bill that got passed was the Dean Smith bill and on FreeCR and Greenleaf Weekly Rare, we've had some criticism of the bill, especially the presence of, you know, um, having celibates, uh, secular celibates, um, to, you know, be able to register your opposition to, um, marriage, um, um, gay marriage. 
Um, but I think, you know, this is probably the best case, um, one of the best case scenarios that could have happened, um, because previously we discussed the possibility of some far worse amendments getting through um, to the parliament um, due to the push from the right. Fortunately, those all got, you know, voted down, um, and then we have marriage equality. It is expected to be put into the legislation by this January. Um, so by the end of next, by the end of the start of next year, um, you sh- um, uh, gay marriages, you should be able to have gay, gay marriages or whatever. Um, so I think it's, you know, very positive news. Um, I guess, you know, one thing I think I would like to bring up is, you know, it wasn't the politicians who brought it to change. In fact, politicians, you know, they may be patting themselves on the back, especially Malcolm Turnbull. Um, listening to him on the ABC radio today, it's almost as if he he he's basically taking sole credit for you know the marriage equality victory, um, despite the fact that he he's the one that put in this postal survey, which was basically a delaying tactic um, to appease the right of the Liberal Party. Um, and, you know, never... And to see him, like, basically, you know, to basically act like he's the one that implemented marriage quality, he's solely responsible and patting himself on the back road is actually quite disgraceful. And I actually think, you know, it's very important to acknowledge um, that, you know, this... We... People are the one that one uh, is... Uh, we're the ones that won marriage equality. It was the years of struggle and hard-fought struggle of campaigning from the LGBTI activists that, you know, got us to this point. Uh, I mean, early, you know, the movement started off with only with um, attracting rallies as low as 500 people. And, you know, there were people who, who you know, reportedly suffered beatings from police. Um, uh, there were people that died just to get to this um, point. You know, it was hard-fought sweat and tears to get um to get to this point and i think it's um no credit should be given to any of the politicians um especially to labor who were who actually could have actually legislated marriage equality in years ago but you know it's important to acknowledge i think this is very important to acknowledge that this is a win um for a mass movement um and but it's not the end um you know discriminate um, there's still many things that need to be won for LGBTI people, and you know we have to continue this struggle long and hard. Um, before I move um, on to another news story, um, I guess I'll play a quick uh, announcement. All right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, it is eight seven almost seven ten a.m. on the eight five five a.m. dial. Guess um the next thing we can talk about um I'm going to talk about is um what happened at the protest against Milo Yiannopoulos that happened on Monday night. Um, basically, for those who actually probably most of the listeners here would know who Milo Yiannopoulos is, he is essentially a poster child for the alt right and um is known for you know expressing some very kind of terrible kind of discriminatory views towards Muslims, women. Um, and basically, you know, is the po- is you know essentially the poster essentially reflects the you know alternative right movement. Um, he has you know he has links to neo Nazis despite the fact he identifies as Jewish himself. Um, so yeah, he had his he's had his speaking tour, um, which I'm as far as I'm aware is coming close to over. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure he has spoken at every city he was. Um, you know, plan to have um, that he was 
planning on speaking at at this point. Um, but yes, there was a protest um, organised by Campaign Against race, Racism and Fascism um, that occurred on Monday. A counter-protest, you know, to basically bring attention to the fact that, you know, his views are abhorrent and that they should not be welcomed in Australia. Um, from someone who was there at the counter-protest, the counter-protest attracted over 300 counter-protesters, um, you know, where we built kind of a bit of a, you know, block or line around, um, around where he was touring. Where he was speaking actually was, you know, quite fascinating. Um, he was essentially speaking at a venue in Kensington, right opposite, you know, the Flemington slash Kensington, um, public housing estates, um, which, you know, where, which have majority, you know, Muslims, Africans and, um, people of colour, um, which, you know, almost seems like a bit of a sick joke, you know, to, you know, have someone here who has absolutely repugnant, uh, repugnant, you know, racist views be given a platform to be, spread his hate and his, you know, racist views that are, um, racist views in, in a very, you know, multicultural suburb. Um, and actually, in fact, um, there was actually a lot of, you know, those, um, tenants who are, um, who lived in the towns were actually hang around outside the, where the protest was being held. Um, so yeah, the counter protests, you know, attracted quite a sizable number of people. Um, you know, we, um, in, and, and, Another extra element to the protest was the presence of the United Patriots Front and the Shrewbrew Crew, who basically organised a counter-protest to a counter-protest. Uh, and we cannot forget, or um, not forget to mention, um, there was a massive presence of police. Um, and so now going out, coming out of the rally, what happened later um, was pretty intense, um, basically... Um, Police had like, you know, four on shields and, you know, the Herald Sun is going on about, um, you know, I mean, I can, I've got the front cover here of, you know, uh, of the Herald Sun here and it's basically painting the protest as, you know, this left and right wing thugs clash at radical event. Um, forgetting to mention that it was actually, you know, the one clash that happened at the protest was actually between two people, um, which, you know, the cops, um, let happen and facilitate. Um, there was also the fact that, you know, Neil Erickson was in presence, basically inciting, you know, violence by, he, he, um, a lot of the far right, um, counter, you know, counter protesters to our counter protests basically, you know, in, said some real, uh, you know, were inciting violence by, you know, saying Islamophobic things to the public housing tenants who were around in surroundings, um, which is what then led them to expire those tenants to join up, um, with the, with the, with the counter protest, which was a kind of like, you know, amazing link of solidarity. Um, and so the protests went on until almost till 10, um, 10.30 p.m. Um, or up to till 10 p.m., um, which is when most of the protests had dissipated at that point, which was a bit unfortunate because basically what happened <coughs> afterwards is the police basically played the role um, after most of the protesters had left. Um, there were still public housing tenants, um, um, you know, hang around the protest um, site, and basically the police played this, you know, role of basically terrorising, um, you know, I saw it with my own eyes, basically they were kind of advancing in and out um, from the process, and there's also video footage that shows police, you know, spraying pepper spray 
on the pro on on the public housing tenants, um, etc. And they'll not let's not forget to mention that the um, police were using pepper spray early on during the protests. You know, often you know at the protesters in indiscriminate ways. Um, so before I um, mention any more details, we are going to be having an interview where we're going to be talking about all that stuff that happened regarding police um, in a later part of the the show in our interview with Anthony Kelly. Um, now, the next kind of news story I want to kind of mention um, is the recent kind of announcement by Donald Trump um, to, you know, to recognise um, Jerusalem as um, the capital of Israel, which has obviously, you know, sparked a lot of ire from the Palestinian um, from the Palestinians, um, and has also made a decision to move um, to move a U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, and a cause on Julia Bishop um, to call, um, confirm Australia's embassy will stay in Tel, Tel Aviv. Um, this is, you know, just a more kind of example of, you know. It completely forgets and a complete lack of acknowledgement of, you know, the rights of the Palestinians and the right to self-determination. Um, I'm going to read out a statement here by the Australian Palestine, Palestine Advocacy Network. Um, they state that they condemn Trump's decision to move the US embassy to Jerusalem and calls on Julia Bishop to confirm uh, Australia's embassy will ta- stay in Tel Aviv. Um, Trump phoned Palestine Ab- Minister Abbas, informing him that we will f- um, we will formally announce the decision on Wednesday, which happened today, um, which happened at la- in the past week. You know, Trump's announcement throws a, a match into the tinderbox of Palestinian frustration, said Bishop George Browning, um, who is the president of the Australian Palestine. Dying advocacy network. Trump's decision is an unlettable move of interference that shows complete disregard for the foundations of peace negotiations. The right-wing extremists have taken over Israel and the White House, continued Bishop Browning. Australia must stay with the international consensus and keep our embassy in Tel Aviv. In Australia, Christian Zionist and conservative liberals such as Eric Abitz and Senator Patterson had been agitating for Australia to also move our embassy to Jerusalem. And, you know, they go on about here the history. You know, Israel took Jerusalem by force in 1967 and its continued military occupation of East Jerusalem is illegal and illegitimate. Um, Jerusalem being a shared capital of both Palestine and Israel has been a cornerstone of all negotiation as the city is central to both parties. You know, Trump's announcement gives uh, Israel a green light to take whatever it likes by force, continued Bishop Browning. What is holding back real peace is Israel thinking it can take whatever it likes and get away with it. And um, APAN and to, um, talk he, um, right here that, you know, polls consistently show uh, Australians want our government to actively support Palestinian independence, continued Bishop Browning, and Australia must unequivocally rule out any move of our embassy. Um, The Australian Palestine Advocacy Network is a national peak body for groups and individuals who are concerned about Palestinian human rights and abuses, and of course, um, that's just a bit of information there. So that's a statement by APAN on, you know, Trump's recent decision um, to move the US Embassy to Jerusalem and recognise Jerusalem as the state of Israel, uh, as the capital of Israel, I mean. Um, and there will be actually a protest. There is going to be a protest organised by the Coalition Against Apartheid. 
and um, that will be happening next Wednesday um, at five. Uh, six o'clock at the State Library and encourage anyone who supports Palestine, um, Palestine self-determination to attend that protest. Um, it will be very important indeed. Okay, um, so I'm, I'm going to go, we'll play a quick announcement and then we're going to be followed by a song. Um, I'd like to just point listeners to the attention of what um, we've, I think we might have covered uh, into with this um, particular dispute that's currently happening right now. Um, it's about the ESO workers. Um, basically, um, ESO is, you know, basically screwing over their more than 200 local maintenance workers um, by cutting their wages by up to 30%. Um, and this, as this leaflet says here, is, you know, in, is an underhanded effort to squeeze out a few extra dollars in profit at the expense of our community. And the workers have such refused to accept this attack on their living standards and are taking a stand to defend well-paid local jobs. And, of course, you know, what part of this is, you know, about the importance of workers' solidarity and standing workers. Um, and essentially, essentially, there's been... No, um, this is happening all the way in uh, around in the sale area um, in Gippsland, and we're, we're encouraging um, people who, who, if you're in, in that area, or you, you, um, to show our, your support for the SO workers because there's a communion protest that's currently going on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and that's happening at Garrett's Road in Longford. And also, um, for anyone who wants to, who can't get, attend, um, attend um, the, um, the ongoing community picket and 24-7 protests, you can make a financial contribution to support the workers by making a deposit in th- into the following bank account. And the account is um, the account name is Fair Pay Fighting Fund, and the BSP is 633000, and the account is 16052562. Um, definitely important um, to be aware of, especially in um, terms of what... Um, um, SO are doing to their workers. Um, and now, I guess, uh, next thing I'll quickly might play just a quick announcement. Quick news story related to the union movement. Um, and this is an article from Green Left Weekly, um, written by Jim McElroy. And it's basically about, um, you know, the, how union members have voted for amalgamation. Um, with the momentum for a new super union has accelerated with basically a strong vote by members of the Maritime Union of Australia and the Textile, Clothing and Footwear Union of Australia in favour of amalgamating with the giant construction, mining and energy union, CFMUU. And that both unions um, have wrote, reported an overwhelmingly yes vote. Um, the MUA vote was 87% in favour, with 50% of members participating. Um, it's important to note that this enrolment was higher, is higher than past internal um, MUA elections for union officers. Um, the TCFUA vote was 97%, with more than 64% of of members voting, and the TSFUA would form part of a new manufacturing division of the merged union. And of course, um, the National um, Secretary of TCFUA said, Michelle O'Neill said, the overwhelming yes vote is a great, strong, clear outcome of this ballot. You know, our members come from diverse cultural and linguistic 
linguistic backgrounds for many English is not their first language yet they not um they turned out in numbers that left us in no doubt as to their view and of course um the view vote is clear and unequivocal, and the federal government should now butt out of trying to overturn the democratic decision. Um, so basically, the, go- the federal government is basically trying to play a role of blocking um, this merger um, from happening, you know, basically citing the usual kind of um, rhetoric, you know, you, you know, it's, it's, it's too, um, you know, basically trying to deny the kind of union's right to organise, especially the union's right to amalgamate into a super union. Of, and of course the legislation, um, it, um, before parliament is trying to utilize the public interest test, um, for registered organizations in a blatant anti-union poll. And of course the success, as Jim McElroy writes here, the success of the union amalgamation now depends on a major campaign by the unions involved and the Australian Council of Trade Unions to stop the anti-merger legislation passing in the Senate. Um, so that's basically the situation right now with um, the proposed amalgamation between the Maritime Union of Australia and um, the TCFUA and the CFMU. Um, it's gotten the consent of the majority of, mem- of members from all three organisations, but what is at stake here is basically the federal government attempting to block it from happening despite the democratic um, vote of the members in those members involved and so um, stay tuned um, tuned for any kind of future updates in that regard alright I'll be playing a quick um, quick announcement and then we'll be moving on to our first interview for the program alright we have Andrea Bunting on the line Um, Andrea Bunting has just returned um, from a trip to Germany where she went to um, a a United Nations climate conference known as the COP23 Um, and she is also uh, a climate activist and is part of Climate Action Moreland. Um, Good morning Andrea. Good morning Jacob. Alright, I guess the first question maybe to ask is to, you know, what can you tell us about your trip to Germany and, you know, what happened, exact, what were kind of like the general things that happened at this COP23 conference before we move on to more kind of more specific questions? Okay, well, uh, the United Nations has these annual climate conferences. COP stands for Conference of the Parties or called COP and it's number 23, so it's called 23, This, which means we've been, they've been going at it for 23 years. Um, these conferences, um, yeah, so they're meant to work out um, a global agreement on climate action. You know that two years ago we, there was a big one called COP21 in Paris, where the Paris Agreement was uh, reached, um, and this one was was is a, uh, a less a sort of a smaller one, I guess, in 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 uh, the type of publicity it got because it was uh, developing various the rules around the Paris Agreement. So you probably didn't hear so much about it, but these are very big events. Um, there was about 20,000 people. So every country in the world is represented by its uh, official delegation. Australia sent 100 official, you know, that's people from the um, uh, Depart- uh, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, 
um, and probably Department of Environment to um, to negotiate. And then, of course, there were observers uh, like myself. So I was representing Climate Action Network Australia. Um, so then the various um, NGOs, and probably there might have been another hundred Australians there who were, who were like me, who were observing. Um, so you can imagine that number from every country in the world, and it came up to, um, yeah, so that's 20,000. So it was just huge, yes. It was a lot of people. <laughs> and um, I guess what um, coming out of, um, I guess, what was there any kind of climate agreement kind of put forward, or is it still basically more of the same? Um, because as you've kind of written here in, um, uh, in Green Left Weekly, um, from what I'm reading here, that there's been kind of no changes to the Paris Climate Agreement and they're still going ahead with that with, with no real amendments. Oh, look, um, they're, they're basically trying to flesh it out. Uh, so, so, as I said, they're trying to agree on the rules for it um, because, of course, you know, it was just a sort of, you know, short agreement at the time. Um, so uh, there, there's several things that um, were being discussed. I mean, uh, you know, there were a couple of sort of big successes like um, um, a gender action plan and uh, recognition of Indigenous knowledge and so on um, that were some big wins. But um, the main things that I think that people were hoping. Um, first, firstly, one is around increasing a country's commitments. So, you know, Australia has committed to reduce its emissions by 26 to 28 percent uh, by 2030, which is a pretty pathetic target, and collectively our, the world's uh, country's targets won't be sufficient. But the thing is, under the Paris Agreement, they're meant to increase these, their targets, so they review them every five years. Um, so Australia will have to actually increase its, its uh, targets. It's called a ratchet mechanism or an ambition mechanism. Um, so there's sort of talk about the process by which that will happen. Of course, uh, this, this is all sort of, you know, we'll take, they have to work all, all this out, how they're actually going to make countries agree to this. So, so that was one thing in fleshing out how those, um, how they'll actually go about it. Um, another thing, and this is where I've been very critical of Australia in the articles, is around helping developing countries. So many, of course, the countries, poorer countries who are going to be very, or who are actually now, very vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. So the people who cause the problem, well, the countries that cause the problem of climate change are richer countries like Australia because we've got these historical emissions. We've been doing this for, you know, a long time and put much so we have this obligation to help out poorer countries who are who are going to feel the effects of climate change. 
Now, there's this green climate, what's it called? Green Climate Fund, which is supposed to, you know, uh, get 100 billion, it's billion, not million, 100 billion a year um, to help developing countries develop and to adapt the best they can. And they were way short of money, uh, you know, very, very short of money on that. Australia is not really doing its fair share. But the other thing is not just that, is that developing countries are trying to push for countries like Australia to help pay to the clean-up costs. It's called loss and damage. They've caused the problem. Rich countries have caused the problem. Poorer countries are now um, being hit by climate impacts. Uh, you know, there's been these massive cyclones and flooding and so on. This year was, you know, was a particularly bad year. And so the, the poor countries wanted, they want a process by which they can get some help. Um, the Paris Agreement basically says, yes, we recognise that the, you know, this loss and damage, but we're not going to give you any money. <laughs> no finance, or there's no grounds for financial compensation. Now, developing countries are trying to work out a way where they can actually get some finance. And Australia acted very badly on that. Um, you know, they were called a bully uh, for trying to knock back some very simple, simple requests, um, which wasn't even about getting money, but about getting process to, to look at the issue. So... Um, you know, Australia was actually targeted by climate activists for its bad behaviour on just, you know, on these simple things. One of the things I've talked about, you might have noticed, is that uh, an award given to the worst country of each day, the talks after for two weeks, but each, the worst country of each day got this award called the Fossil of Day. Now, Australia managed to get three of those And um, what, what can you can you tell us more about you know why you know Australia won that award? <laughs> well, the first it won the first it won the first award of the whole conference for Adani. Um so that was the way that the global climate movement sent a strong message to you know Australia that this was so out of step with with uh, what was the, um, you know expected. Um, but, you know, the, the, so that, that was really the main thing um, that kicked it off. Um, and then there were various others for, the, as I said, the way it was um, it was bullying, um, the way it was acting with, with other richer countries to, to, to stop, you know, try and stop talking about um, various actions. But in the end, the climate movement decided that this... Um, the worst of the whole conference was, of course, the United States. They had to give it to the United States because the United States has basically announced it's going to pull out of the Paris Agreement. 
Um, but, you know, <laughs> even though it's doing that, it's a negotiators were still there negotiating as if it was still going to stay in. So I think they don't expect Trump to last. But, um, but you know, this, this idea of actually trying to stop a global agreement is, is of course, the worst thing. That's what, what um, the United States is doing. Australia still is staying in the Paris Agreement, but it basically wants to leave it as a weak agreement um, without... And, and to pay as little money as possible, um, you know, to, to help uh, countries that are now being affected by climate change and will be affected in the future. So that's, that's for us, we're the second worst in the world. But we often act with the, the United States. We've done this for a long time. Um, to try and stop effective global climate action. Yeah, I'm, I guess the next question I kind of want to ask, and this is something you've kind of written about in Green Left Weekly, um, but I kind of wanted to yeah, hear you a bit, comment a bit on this whole thing about, um, you know, um, this um, about this discussion around emissions trading schemes, yeah. um, and basically in the conference, I imagine because it's a conference of you know capitalist countries, um, you know, coming together to discuss you know how we deal with climate action without you know bringing attention to the elephant in the room. What was sort of the discussion around emission trading schemes, which has always been kind of these kind of market-based mechanisms happening. Yes. Well, emissions trading is allowed under the uh, Paris Agreement. But, uh, look, I went to a couple of sessions uh, um, that where people were talking about uh, the whole... Uh, how to make them actually work. So people are acknowledging now that a lot of these uh, sort of carbon credits have been scammed. Um, so... There's some real desperate efforts to make sure that they're actually genuine in the first place. Um, So they want to make them genuine. They want to make them environmentally, um, have environmental integrity. So I think the people who are pushing these are really on the back foot because they're acknowledging that what what has happened in the past has been basically, you know, not effective. Um, so there's a lot of scrambling to make it make it work, and of course the thing is, can we keep making you know waiting until these things finally work if they ever work? Now that's one issue um, because certainly we've had this for a long time, and they've been they've been trying to get them to work and to be um, you know actually actually reducing emissions instead of being some sort of scam. The second thing, of course, that is really concerning for a country like Australia is that this will be used to to put off action within Australia because we will we will buy emissions from overseas. And there's also the one that Australia plays these dodgy games because we focus on land use. So we're doing less land clearing and, and somehow that that counts towards allowing us to, to massively increase our fossil fuel emissions. So there's some really dodgy games that Australia has been has been going on at. Um, so it does want to focus on on land use emissions, which are important, but it does that at the expense of reducing emissions from fossil fuels. So it plays very dodgy games in in accounting, you know, carbon accounting. 
So really, as I said in the latest Green Left Weekly article, we've got to stop these silly games and say, look, what do we have to do to stop climate change? We have to address address every sector. We have to move every sector towards sustainability. That means energy, and of course it means agriculture and land clearing and, 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 and everything. Not sort of trade things off against each other or trade things off against what is supposedly happening in other countries. As I said, many of these credits are actually proved to be dodgy. So, um, you know, that, that's the whole problem with the, with the whole emissions thing. But as I said, it is in the Paris Agreement, um, so it's going to be pretty hard <laughs> to get that out. Um, and, you know, there are still these efforts to try and make them work. So I think we've got to keep exposing the way that Australia has been using, using these schemes to avoid, basically, our emissions from, from energy have soared while we've supposedly been reducing emissions. And it's because of the games Australia's been playing. And it's really around land use, counting for land use, stopping land clearing. I guess kind of like the next question is, you know, we've spoken quite a lot about, you know, what's wrong with some of these solutions that are being put forward to address climate action and what do you think, you know, as an activist, kind of like where to kind of next for climate action, especially coming out of this conference and probably finding that, you know, nothing really, they're not really putting any, you know, concrete solutions to actually address the problem. Well, there are some big gaping problems that I see, and one is around exports. So we export a lot of fossil fuels, Australia does. Um, and there are still countries, of course, that are using coal. There's a few of them um, that, uh, you know, and Australia says, oh, look, they have a demand for coal. We're just satisfying it. And it doesn't get included in Australia's you know, target commission or what it accounts for. So we just completely ignore ignore exports and we just blame the other countries. So that's something I think that we've really got to focus on. We have been focusing on it with Adani, but, you know, Adani is one project and we're, we're one of the biggest fossil fuel exporters in the world, Australia is, and they want to be the biggest for, for natural gas. So that's really critical. We've, I think we've focused on Adani. That's, that's good and probably killed it. That's great. But there is a huge export industry. We export a lot of coal and an increasing amount of natural gas. Um, so those, those are things that I think we can, um, you know, increase so that we're not just focusing on Adani. And another one, of course, is what we import in terms of goods. So we ignore that. We ignore all the energy that's gone into making the stuff that we import, you know, mainly from poorer countries. And it gets counted as their emissions. So another thing that was really coming out was around consumption. You know, there is a lot of, you know, inequality in the world, as we well know, um, around what we consume um, as uh, you know, as well as, as I said, you know, finance in helping out poorer countries. So um, you know, we've got to address these sorts of things because they don't count in, in how we account for emissions. So we can say we're doing our bit, but there are these gross <laughs> problems in terms of that. So as to what the climate movement should 
focus Look, I think the climate movement has done really well in, in shifting the focus away from some sort of you know emissions trading scheme to focusing on the problems which are fossil fuel, you know, as I said, an export industry. So that's great, but, but we've just got to keep it up. Not, you know, we're going to win a darning. We've nearly won that one. It's, but the thing is now to keep the momentum on fossil fuels. Uh, and all the other sectors, all the other things we've got to look at. Um, but the one thing that I think Australian climate movement misses out on, doesn't talk about enough, is how do we get our energy use down? And I said that that's around consumption, it's around energy efficiency, it's around just getting rid of all the wasteful practices. Um, how do we do do that? Because I tell you what, there's a lot of developing countries that are really critical of you know, Australia and so on, like for that. Um, you know, that we just basically consume a hell of a lot and we're hypocrites. So um, I think, you know, how do we get rid of waste? But, you know, so rather than focusing on, oh, look, which emissions trading type of trading scheme do we want, we must not go down that road. You know, let the political parties squabble about that. But we've got to focus on the real problems. Okay, um, we're, going clo- we're getting close to the end of the interview. Do you kind of have any kind of final comments you'd like to make, um, Andrea? Well, I think, um, you know, these, these uh, conferences happen every year, so I, you know, I don't think the one I'm thinking about going to another, but of course there's, uh, uh, you know, as I said, uh, you know, it's lots, there, there are the flights and all that, and there's a lot of people going. Uh, and then there's a bit, mm, a bit of a talk fest. But, um, look, I think people really should pick up what what is happening here and, and follow Australia's behaviour on the international stage because I think people don't realise how bad we actually are internationally. It's not just sort of these things that happen in every country. We're particularly one of the bad, bad ones. But on the other hand, there's a lot of countries like Germany which, which claim it's doing wonderful things, but you know, it's got a anti-coal movement just as vibrant as ours. So I think, you know, just uh, it's good to keep an eye on how we are and how we look on the international stage. All right, thank and you. I will keep doing that for Green Mass Weekly. All right, thank you very much, um, Andrea. It was great um, having you um, talk on the program. Thanks very much, Jacob. Right. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. All right, that was um, Andrea Bunting um, from the Climate Action Network who has just recently returned from a strip United Nations Climate Conference in Germany. All right, you're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. It is 7.54 a.m. on the 8.55 a.m. dial. Um, I have a new... I think we should go to a bit of international news um, for Green, from Green Left Weekly. Um, this is an article about um, what's happening in Korea, the, known as the Korean crisis, and the rue from South Korea. And this is an article written by Young Soo Won. Um, and he, um, they basically write here about, um, uh, um, basically write here about, you know, kind of like, you know, what is the kind of view of South Koreans in light of this whole sort of, conflict that is occurring between the United States and North Korea. 
And they write here that, you know, will a verbal war between a senile dotard and a little rocket man result in an actual war? Um, probably not, but at the moment, the risk is unprecedented. And of course, you know, the, what, what they write here is that, you know, the reason that, you know, this remains unlikely is because the consequences of any action, um, is so catastrophic that right now the, this is the only deterrent to, to war. In South Korean society, um, there are few visible signs of a coming war. Al Jazeera even questioned why um, South Koreans do not um, seem worried about an impending war given the risky escalation of military threats. The answer is, for almost 70 years, Koreans have faced the threat of war on a daily basis. Now, they write here that on this kind of peace, paradoxical kind of peace, is because it's only... Um, sustained by this kind of fact that, you know, any potential war between, say, North and South Korea is a tantamount to an apocalyptic annihilation. In terms of where the present South Korean government policies, they're aimed at resol- resolving the crisis as well as improving the North-South relationship. However, those in charge in the US and Japan, which are allies of South Korea, are, you know, basically some of the worst warmongers in the recent history in relation to the region, which weakens the autonomous capacity um, of the new South Korean government. Um, but of course, South, for for, pe- for people in South Korea, they're support, generally supportive of the government's approach, but critical of both the US and North Korean governments. However, with respect to North Korea, the, the issues involved are rather delicate. Um, and they write here that the pro-North Korean groups in South Korea are mainly cautious. They were basically ideologically isolated um, and under the previous two governments and were repressed. And, of course, they are aware that any further implication of connections with North Korea would threaten their existence. Um, of course, regardless, their perception is that they have to support North Korea's approach towards the US and South Korea as one of their self, as one of self-defense against internal, external threats. And then they write here about, you know, the Kim jong In's regime's choice is suicidal. The main victims of such an insane, reckless confrontational strategy are the North Korean people. And, of course, at this juncture, the only resistance shown by North Koreans is desertion from their homeland. Um, the North Koreans regime's actions are a very dangerous gamble. Paradoxically, this gamble saved Japan's um, ultra-nationalist Shinzo Abe government from a political crisis and gave Japan a rayable chance to rearm. And of course, the ruling Liberal Democrat Party's overwhelming victory in the general election in October was a gift from Kim Jong-un. And of course, everyone knows um, the solution to stop the spiralling tensions, and stop knows the solution. It's to stop the spiralling tensions and to initiate a dialogue. The US must stop its threats and military exercises, and North Korea must suspend nuclear tests and missile launches. And of course, there's reports of this kind of dialogue occurring occasionally, but no one is sure of the prospect aside from backdoor dealers. Besides these ambiguous moves, the key players in the conflict ignore this simple solution completely. So, you know, if, if the South Korean government's intentions are not enough to secure such a path, then what might? Um, and then they write here, in the context of the present crisis, civil and social movements Korea, Japan and um, and China need to form an alliance for peace in the Korean militia. This would aim at reviving a shared historical memory of vibrant international solidarity and cooperation between Korean, Japanese and Chinese lefts in the first half of the 20th century. Um, but at this point, the reality is gloomy. China and North Korea lack a civil society capable of such autonomous 
autonomous actions. Despite some exchange, South Korean and Japanese social movements have had few experiences of solidarity and collaboration. In South Korea, for example, um, the peace movement is weak and lacking an international perspective. I'm pointing to the example of when Donald Trump visited South Korea on November 7th and 8th. Um, His visit was met with competing demonstrations, protesting him and welcoming him simultaneously. However, anti-Trump protests failed to overwhelm those waving Korean flags and the Star and Stripes. The anti-war protests involved only part of the recent candlelight movement that brought down the previous right-wing prime minister, even though our absolute majority of Korean people are angry with um, Trump's senseless provocations. Um, but now it includes here that, you know, you know, while these, um, you know, the, the only force of capable of blocking the escalation of the crisis is the East a- Asian peace movement acting from below, along with a global anti-militarist, anti-imperialist peace movement. Um, international social movements and the radical left need to build a global peace movement now in conjunction with a global environment movement in hence climate change for the survival of humankind. Um, and this is an article, a bridge from Yong Soo-wa, who is the, um, who is a coordinator of the International Forum in Korea. Okay, um, I'll play a quick announcement and then we'll be going on to the activist calendar. Alright, it's 8am, um, so that will be, means it's time for the activist calendar. Um, um, the end of year radical book sale has been extended. Um, it's going, it's been, go, it's going to be, it's, it was happening from Saturday, Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday and it has been extended to the Thursday, Friday and Saturday, which means that today, um, if you drop in from 12pm to 6pm, um, you'll be able to find book, um, all sorts of radical books, you know, pamphlets, merchandise, new sound, secondhand stock or 25% off. Um, and that is at the Resistance Centre, level 5, 407 Swanson Street, in the city. Um, for more info, simply phone 96398622. Um, this Friday, the West Papuan Sampari Art Exhibition, um, art, which is um, a gallery of artworks and public events relating to West Papua's struggle for freedom, and that's at the ACU Art Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. Um, on Friday, December the 8th, um, there'll be a community, well, today, today, um, this morning, there'll be a community protest for WebDoc Peaceful Assembly and to, it's a protest victimization of an MUA worker by, um, the Vic Steve Doring Company. And that'll be at 7.10am at the, um, 10am 78 WebDoc Drive in Port Melbourne. Um, there'll be uh, a vigil and um, street walk to protest Manus and Nauru, um, organised by a Maribon group of grandmothers against detention of refugee student, children, and that is happening at 11am at Bill Shorten's office, um, um, 12 Hall Street in Mooney Ponds. Um, the Australian Unemployed Workers, Unemployed Workers Union will have a branch meeting from 3pm at the Shades Hall, corner of Victoria and Ligon Street in Carlton South. Um, there'll be a, a Rakarate Manus and Nauru um, action, uh, sort of action. Basically, uh, it'll be a rack working bee to cover the streets of Melbourne in posters, stickers, shorts, stencils, banners, leaflets and more with the welcome refugees and bring them here message. And of course, advertisements for the Human Rights Day refugee rally. That'll be happening from 5.30 at the State Library. Um, also happening at 5.30pm at the State Library will be a celebration, uh, a celebration march of marriage equality passing. Um, that'll be happening at 5.30 at the State Library and it's organised by Equal Love. 
Um, there'll be Asylum Seeker Resources Centre fundraiser, Boundless Plains, um, featuring Melbourne Mass Gospel Choir, um, Georgia Fields, um, Mayer, Wolf and Willow, Shannon Wilk, and Elsie and the Vibe. And of course, many other special guests and speakers. They'll be happening at 6pm at the Gasometer Hotel, 484 Smith Street in Collingwood. And it's organised by the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Um, on Saturday, um, there will be the Social Alliance End of Year Barbecue. Um, come and celebrate another year, radical year of politics with Social Alliance members and supporters. Or welcome delicious barbecue, rego options, bar available, and entry by donation. And they'll be happening at 1 to 6 p.m. 881 Raffswine Street in Fairfield. Five minute walk from the Fairfield station. And for more info, phone 0458-958-385. Uh, that is 0458-958385 and proceeds to Greenleaf Weekly. Um, there'll be a film screen, Sammy Blood, um, during on Saturday during the 1930s in Sweden. Indigenous Sammy children were systematically removed from their parents. Um, and, it's, and it's basically about um, one of those students, Ellie Marja, and who was sent to a boarding school where Indigenous students are made acceptable to white society. That will be happening at 4.30pm at the Acme Centre in Federation Square. Um, this Sunday, um, there'll be a rally and offshore processing, um, except Rohingya refugees at 2pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. Um, and Monday, on December 11th, there'll be an NUW debate. Um, basically, it's time for a basic income, ready to battle out on the night. Our co-founder of the Safe Schools Coalition, Victoria, Ros Ward, um, activist Gary Foley, um, former Deputy Prime Minister Wayne Swan and write-in presenter Helen Razor. They'll be happening at 5.30pm Monday, December 11th at the Shrades Hall. Um, there'll be a film screening of Shaku, um, an encore screening of the documentary by Baruz Bushani, um, that lays bare the reality of indefinite detention on Manus Island. The session will be introduced by the Refugee Action Collective with a discussion to follow the screening. And of course, we're hoping that Baruz Bashani will be able to participate via the phone. Um, that'll be happening at 6.30pm, um, December the 12th at the Acme Centre in Federation Square. Um, Wednesday, there'll be a rally, defend and extend public housing, no sell-offs at 12 noon at the Parliament in Spring Street, organised by defend and extend public housing. Um, there'll be a Manus Refugee Fundraiser, 6pm um, at the Loop Project Space and Bar at 23 Mayo Street in the city. Um, and also happening at 6.30pm will be a protest for Palestinian rights. Um, um, that will be at 6pm at the State Library on Wednesday, December the 13th. Um, on Saturday, um, December the 16th, um, there'll be a protest in um, defence of Victoria Markets, and they'll be happening at Victoria Markets, I think, at 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. Um, next next week, I should we should have the correct details. Um, and on there'll be uh, on Saturday, September the 16th, there'll be a festival, um, basically a fundraiser to stop the the Andani coal mine at 4 p.m. at Mervell Manor in North Fitzroy. Okay, um, that's pretty much it for um, the announcements. Um, I'll go. We'll play a we'll play a quick short um, song. Um, basically, we can play. We'll play. Um, Black Fellow, White Fellow by the Wombi Band, um, and we'll and then we'll move on to our first, second, and last interview of the program. 
All right. Um, sorry for that. There was just a bit of delay in getting the interview ready. Um, we have Anthony Kelly on the line. Um, he is the CEO of the Flemington and Kensington Legal Center, um, Community Legal Center. Um, Anthony, you're on the line there. Good morning. Oh, yeah, good morning. Yeah. I just making sure that was working. All right. Um, I guess I want to hear your comments on um, the kind of recent events um, that happened on Monday night um, at the counter protests against Milonopolis, especially. Um, given the reports, and in fact, I witnessed it myself, of you know how the police um, were treating the the public housing tenants um, who are you who are of kind of African descent, and um, kind of like almost seemed like another example of kind of like police violence against people of colour. Yeah, look, it was certainly um, discriminatory in lots of different forms and ways. Um, the the policing of these sort of uh, right wing events and counter protests has um, followed a bit of a standard template over recent years with um, police using overwhelming numbers to separate two sides and it's been a bit of a um, policing by the numbers uh, for quite some time now because they've been so regular, unfortunately, in our political calendars. But um, this uh, one was uh, had, you know, was different in the sense that it was due to its location. So uh, for better or worse, the location was directly opposite um, Flemington High Rise housing estates, an incredibly diverse, uh, vibrant community of over 5,000 people and um, local residents from Kensington and Flemington um, of all persuasions were quite outraged that um, that the Milo event was held in our town and uh, there were a lot of uh, local residents from all over who came down to the protests in support and joined in of course. Um, but the policing was really unfortunate in the sense that it really prior- it didn't prioritise at all the safety of local people, um, and the police seemed to be oblivious to the idea that far right uh, street gangs such as the Soldiers of Odin and the UPF, you know, the United Patriots Front, and the True Blue Crew, and all those characters um, are incredibly uh, violent and dangerous, and were targeting local residents directly through their megaphones and and um, you know, the threats of intimidation and the obscenities that they kept yelling out continually. And uh, unfortunately, the police sort of ignored that behaviour and instead turned their focus on on um, not only the activists on the street who were loudly protesting, but also uh, the local residents who were also outraged and were also the most impacted by this sort of racist vitriol that they, um, that they experienced for several hours. I guess yeah, um, because you know, looking at the the Herald Sun, um, it's quite interesting to note that, um, it kind of omits kind of the fact that the one clash that actually occurred at that rally was actually between two individuals, um, and that was Neil Erickson and actually another person who was actually, um, who then there's actually history there because Neil Erickson, um, actually, um, as you know. Um, in t- tried to disrupt a refugee protest recently, and the the same person who tried to you know come and rush into defence was the same person who got into a bit of a scuffle with with Neil Erickson. Um, and basically, the you know from what the mainstream media kind of admits is you know trying to paint you know the left and right as the, as the same. Um, that it was actually the the right wing protesters who were trying to incite violence, especially Neil Erickson. I think apparently said on the mic that basically to incite the public housing, um, you know, the Flemington um, tenants, because, um, you know, the majority of the Muslim was basically trying to, you know, incite violence by saying, you know, Muhammad was a rapist, etc. Mm. Yes, 
yeah, look, it, there's a there's a lot of things, but the local dynamics of the the clash between the, the groupings that are there, and um, police are well versed in that. You know, they they see a, a violence or punch on, they they're they're sort of obligated, but they go in and they will try, they will break up that using um, spray and and truncheons and their physical for, use of force. Um, so that's one thing, but they were, yeah, they were, they were definitely ignoring that vitriol and that provocative, um, provocation that was coming from those far right groups. Um, it was similar. Sharon Dev Singh had a really, um, very pertinent point. He was down there as well, um, uh, saying that this is very equivalent to what happens in Paris and in other places in Europe where far right groups will march through an immigrant community and shouting out things like that that obscenities about Muhammad or, you know, naming the concentration camps that they were doing as a, as a chant uh, and other sort of obscenities that are just really horrific and racial vilification. And then local residents will understandably be outraged by this and come out to try and oppose the far right. And then the police in full force will come out and end up targeting the local residents. Hmm. And that's what we saw. That template was what we saw repeated in... Flemington, Kensington, on Monday. Um, so the local residents were the one that copped the full, you know, the full force of the riot police and the, the response afterwards. And um, the the far right groupings were essentially just um, cordoned off by the police to allow to allow them. And uh, that unbalance and that sort of policing is something that you know is really unacceptable. I guess now coming coming out of the in the aftermath of the protest, um, apparently there were a number of um, people that will be facing arrests and um, charges. Um, and I was and apparent um, I've heard that you know Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre is going to be taking on you know some of those cases. And can you tell us a bit about that kind of work and defence that you'll you'll be doing for those residents? Sure. So we're always there for um, residents in Flemington Kensington with any legal issues. So it's it's sort of um, for us any sort of charges that might arise from this, uh, and they're local to our area. We're the closest community legal centre, so that's um, part of the course really. Well, I mean, we've offered support and spread the the word around in the local neighbourhoods. Um, we arrests that might be a result from um, you know from activists. There at the protests, we're hoping that the various groupings and act- activist organisations will um, provide legal support, as everyone should, to their um, comrades. And um, but uh, yeah, we're certainly doing lots of outreach in the community and uh, making sure that people aren't left without legal support and backup. But whether or not charges arise is still yet to be seen. So that's um, there's lots of factors whether um, police will be um, laying any charges. Okay, I guess maybe a last question. This might this is almost tangentially kind of related, um, but it's moving on a bit. Might move a bit on the tangent, but you'll probably know quite a lot about this area. Um, but I wanted to hear just a bit of a comment from you on um, the Victoria Police. Uh, apparently, this has just appeared in the news only yesterday about how the Victoria Police are going to be facing a new case over racial profiling of African men, and that's something that. Um, your legal centre specialises in defending people from, and I kind of want to see just what's your comment on some of the, uh, some of the things that are happening there. Oh, I'd be interested to see the the article. We've run we're running and run several cases against the police around racial profiling and discriminatory policing. So there's already quite a few uh, in train. 
Um, our police accountability project has a statewide legal practice where we both take complaints from around Victoria for people who want to um, and assist people. And one of our intake priorities is um, racial discrimination. Uh, but also we run a, a series of um, um, cases, uh, strategic litigation cases, where racial profiling is a key element. So, um, yeah, look, that's something that we're very, very keen on, and um, yeah, I'd be interested to see the article. Yeah, it's yeah. appeared in the ABC. Mm. Okay, so, yeah, so basically we're um, uh, we're always looking at, in the in the absence of a uh, a fully well-resourced, um, an independent investigative body that is able to um, uh, reduce the high level of impunity that Victoria Police, you know, uh, experience at the moment. Uh, the civil courts are unfortunately one of the ways in which people can seek justice and seek redress, and it's also one of the ways in which we can help ensuring accountability uh, against the police. So it's the civil courts are never. Um, the cure-all, because they're, they're such long, laborious and expensive methods to for anyone, for any individual to achieve justice. Um, but in lieu of an independent investigative body in Victoria, um, people will still continue to use the courts for these sorts of things. So um, in the past, we've used the Racial Discrimination Act the federal, uh, in the federal court to, um, to claim for our clients um, systemic racial profiling, the systemic discrimination via racial profiling, and that was a similar claim to that was used by residents in the Palm Island case um, and in regard to the policing of Palm Island um, several years ago after the death, death in custody. So, um, so those sort of cases we're very interested in, and we hope that eventually Victoria will um, you know, catch up with Canada and other parts of the world with a a very clear and well-resourced um, authoritative investigative body that is able to come in and investigate complaints against police uh, all the way to prosecution. And that way we'll see, we'll, we'll start to see a reduction then of, of um, you know, we hope police abuse and violence against citizens of Victoria. Okay. I guess the uh, last kind of comment, um, question I kind of want to ask is uh, just a bit of comment um, on kind of like the Flemington and Kensington's kind of um, position because you signed on to this letter that the Flemington community has signed on, you know, basically mm. condemning Milo's um, visit to their community. Yeah, look for sure. Look, this is a, I think it's a really good um, thing to come out of this is that um, the Flemington Kensington community is standing up against the presence of right wing white nationalists, white supremacists, and neo Nazis in our community, and standing by those people who are most uh, affected by this sort of racism and hate. And so this is a real... Um, this I don't think this has happened before. Uh, the right wing have mobilised in Narrawarren and in Bendigo and in Melton and, you know, in the CBD multiple times, but I don't think we've had such a, um, a mainstream standing up against uh, the presence of white nationalists by uh, a wide variety of community members. So we've... So deputy mayors have signed on, local, local residence committees, local businesses... Uh, local councillors from both the Mooney Valley City Council and the City of Melbourne have all signed a very clear statement that says we don't want these groups in our in our society and we don't want the hate and violence and vilification that they bring. So it's a very it's a very clear assertive message that this that the whole community 
um, stands by the people in Flemington Estates and everyone else who was impacted by the presence of Milo and and his various followers and say that it's, uh, it's unacceptable. So I think this is a very um, interesting initiative and hopefully other other towns and other suburbs where these white nationalist groups mobilise um, can also do similar things. Yeah, because yeah, I think it's a very important kind of statement to collect a statement to make because one of the reasons why as someone who who joined that counter protest against Milo, one of the reasons is, you know, we, we it's very problematic to, you know, allow groups like these to roam the streets unchallenged, um, because what it leads to is increased violence towards people of colour and minorities. That's right, yeah. And you know, ultimately there should be thirty thousand people in the streets when these groups mobilise. Um, it shouldn't be left to small groups um, to try and get their numbers to stand to stand in front of them. It should be the entire community. It should be mayors. It should be uh, local businesses. It should be local councillors. It should be everybody standing up against this um, sort of politics. And um, you know, that's a um, yeah. This is one way of sort of building the um, opposition to the far right in in Victoria. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. I'm Anthony Kelly for being on our program, and um, have a great day. Thanks very much. And stay tuned for the next week and uh, for beyond, beyond Zero Emissions. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.